Chapter 4, The Golden Calf. In this next chapter, I'll be highlighting and drawing attention to some of the most beautiful, profound, and powerful concepts that Scripture contains. But let me warn you, unless you are sensitive to the Lord, you will easily misunderstand, and these truths will be offensive, making you uncomfortable to the conviction they will bring. For some, this will be a turning point in your life of how you both appreciate and adore the brethren, gaining new insight to how precious she really is to God and should be to us. For others, this will be the point in which your inner complacency and your comfort in what you've always known will mark the end of the line for you with this book, revealing the cost to be too high for you to follow Jesus as he demands. You will choose to lay aside reading this book and in turn, the cross. You want to still say he is Lord, of course, and offer the occasional good deed in his name, but you will choose to remain in a place in which you refuse to be challenged by the cost of the cross, thus never experience its beauty and power. In short, you will choose to cling to your own quote-unquote golden calf rather than the master. Let me explain. In Exodus 32, we come face to face with the chapter that reflects much of our society today. It's as if history is repeating itself as it often does, and yet is veiled to those who choose to remain natural on thinking, living, and understanding. 1 Corinthians 2, 12-14. Here's some backstory. The Hebrews have been delivered from Egypt, having seen the hand of Moses orchestrate the miracles of God before them, which granted their long-awaited release from Pharaoh. Moses led them through the Red Sea in miraculous fashion and brought them to Mount Sinai, on which he went up to hear from God. Days into his absence... When the Hebrews saw that Moses was delayed, they began to grumble and complain to Aaron and ask him to make for them their own gods who would quote-unquote go before them. This phrase, go before them, is one that basically means that they requested gods who would lead them as they wanted to be led. Gods they could control instead of a god who controls them. So instead of rebuking the people... Aaron caved to the pressure and absence of Moses, commanded them to take the gold and silver they had acquired from the Egyptians at God's decree, Exodus 11, 1-3, and proceeded to forge a golden calf. Now, this is probably the bulk of the story we have always known, but what often gets missed is the fact that, in their worship of the golden calf, they had somehow convinced themselves they were still honoring God. Listen to what the word says. Exodus 32, verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the Lord. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Isn't it strange that they made this physical idol, using the very things God provided for them to have, and then choose to sit down to enjoy what they had achieved until their own hearts were satisfied. Verse 6. All while convincing themselves they were actually honoring God in the process. I mean, you and I look at that and think to ourselves, there is no way that any of this would be okay to God. How dare they take something which God gave as a gift and use it in a way that glorifies and pleases themselves rather than God. And yet, this is exactly what we have done with so many things in the church today. Namely, money and marriage. Yes, you read that right. I said marriage. Marriage, or just the overall concept of family in general, has become one of the biggest golden calves in the church today. It is a tremendous and beautiful gift God has given to His people, and yet, it has become an idol among many in the American church. It is the good things that pose the highest risk of becoming the greatest idol. Let me lay down some groundwork before digging into why this matters in in today's church. 
I ask that you read the entire chapter before making any presumptions of what you think I might be implying, since presumptions can become a very sinful habit. I want to look at just a few teachings of Jesus. In Luke 9, 57-62, we find three examples of people who say they want to follow Jesus. But with all three, there was something that was of greater importance than their desire to follow Him. Let's look at the last one in particular. Luke 9, 61-62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Seems pretty extreme, don't you think? After all, this guy seemed pretty excited to follow Jesus. He just wanted to first say goodbye to his family. A perfectly reasonable request, right? Well, to Jesus, it isn't. Now, there are all kinds of speculations as to what exactly it means to say farewell to those at my home. But whatever your view, it doesn't really change the statement Jesus is making. The kingdom of God comes first, even above earthly comfort and security. Verse 57 through 58, earthly inheritance and duty, verse 59 through 60, and earthly interests of love and family, verse 61 through 62. All must take a back seat to following Jesus as he commands, not as we choose, or else we are not fit for the kingdom. Those are the words of Jesus, not mine. And this was the easy passage to digest. Look at what Jesus teaches in Luke fourteen fifteen through 20. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see to it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Luke fourteen fifteen through 20 I'm going to just tell you that none of these things are in and of themselves wicked or evil. In fact, they are part of everyday life for most people. Jobs, possessions, and family are all part of a normal routine for, of life for many. They all can be and should be wonderful ministries in which to reach people for Christ and encourage those who are already belonging to Him. And yet, Jesus says they can be excuses that make us unworthy to taste of His banquet, since they can often divide our devotion to Christ and distract us from our true purpose in life. Maybe for you it's your job. You work long hours that keep you from investing in the fellowship or your intimate time with the Lord. Even when you are able to partake of either, your energy has been wasted and you can't truly engage with the Lord because you're too busy wrestling to stay awake. Thus you can't be filled. Or maybe you consistently abandon or neglect the brethren because your customers are a greater priority in your life. You find it hard to spend time in solitary prayer or the word because your work schedule is too demanding. Time is too short and energy too low. Why has it become so hard for Christians to choose to put less of the world on our plates and more of Christ? Or maybe it's your need for possessions that has you running the rat race to keep up with the Joneses. Your life is controlled by your job, since you're needing to maintain your lifestyle, and it dictates to you your schedule, how you are able to live, spend your time, and prioritize your life in light of eternity. How is the world ever going to see how precious the church is to God and should be to us if we are so easily abandon her for temporal gain? 
Instead of letting your boss dictate to you what you will and won't do, stand up for Christ and don't compromise assembling with the saints to worship the God who gave you life. It's not okay to abandon the beloved because you are too scared or unwilling to stand. Too many have become slaves to man instead of to Christ. Read 1 Corinthians seven twenty three and 1 Timothy 6, 6-12. Maybe it's that you're a newlywed and you feel the bulk of your attention needs to be given to your spouse. Thus, trying to set your hand to the plow of service to Christ would require too much sacrifice for you, revealing what you actually love most. Whatever it may be, and no matter how good you think the excuse is, it is still a lousy justification for disobeying the call of Christ, according to Jesus. If we place any of the aforementioned above Jesus, God won't accept it. Jesus says you can only have one master, and he will not share the throne of your life. Now this parable is spoken specifically about the Jews who refuse to accept the call of God. But Jesus addresses the same principle for everyone immediately after. Therefore, its truth can be applied to us as believers. Listen to what he says. Luke fourteen twenty six through 27 If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Those are strong words, but words that must be taken in the proper scope of Scripture. We are not to be a people of hatred, as Jesus and the epistles make that abundantly clear. The Greek word used for hate is maseo, and can mean to detest something, but it can also mean to love less. To further exemplify the latter meaning, let me include the parallel passage in Matthew 10, 37-38, which says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Regardless of the change in wording, the extraction is still the same. Jesus must be first over any earthly or fleshly bond, no matter how strong or deep even above the tie to your own life. If he is not, you cannot be his disciple. Luke 9.24 Let that sink in. To further intensify this point, listen to the words of Jesus from Luke 14, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Or Galatians 5.24 And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. You see, there aren't just words. I'm sorry. You see, these aren't just words to get a rise out of people. And Jesus and Paul are not just being facetious. They are laying down the framework that golden calves just won't do in the kingdom of Christ. As they don't mix with any notion of the cross. Jesus will not share his glory, nor the glory of the Father. Let us both remember before we continue much further that it is his word, not ours. He is Lord, not us. We do not want to fall into the same trap that the Hebrews did simply because we think he is delayed and isn't watching. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-14. I've got one more passage to go over before I'm going to tie this in with why it is a vital concept to understand within the church. Now I'm going to speak more specifically to men in this next section, but the trap is most certainly not just limited to men. Be warned, if the previous two passages weren't blunt enough, this next one is sure to be, as we will hear from Paul in the matter in 1 Corinthians seven twenty-nine. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives 
live as though they had none. Not sure Paul could get any more clear on the matter. Our relationship with our wives or family must not come before our purpose, commitment, and love to Christ as he commands. Paul says that no matter our current status, married or unmarried, male or female, we are to have, quote-unquote, undivided devotion to the Lord. 1 Corinthians seven thirty-five. He even references our desire to care for our spouse as being a worldly concern because it divides our interests from that of heaven. 1 Corinthians seven thirty-two through 34 We must not be a people who get caught up in the fleeting moments of this life and temporal shadows of eternity as the Hebrews did and formed a golden calf with the gift God gave. We must not lose sight of the fact that Jesus is coming back and we will be expecting a people, I'm sorry, and we'll be expecting a people who are doing his work when he comes. He is not delayed as if he were not coming back down for his people. We must be ready for his return like men who are waiting for their master to come home. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Luke twelve thirty six through 37 Now let me emphasize this. I am in no way saying that we should disregard the idea and construct of family or the need for having a job. And neither was Paul. God has given us his commands when it comes to living as husbands, wives, fathers, and mothers. It is of tremendous importance that we take the concept and construct of family seriously and seek to operate in a biblical pattern for how God says it should function, as everything we do is a reflection of Christ to others. But one of the greatest traps for a Christian is that when we want something to be true, we often convince ourselves that it is, instead of basing our belief solely on the word. Marriage is in disarray today, even in the church, and it must be reconciled back to its proper place in God's design as according to the word of God. But in the Christian life, we never truly fix anything by giving greater attention to the problem and less attention to Christ. We will only make matters worse if we focus on our marriages instead of our mission. Let us learn a lesson from Peter, who took his eyes off Jesus in order to focus on his problem, but only plunged further into the chaos. What I am seeking to do is bring understanding to and order within how we prioritize the things of heaven and the things of this world, as misplaced desires will always lead to misplaced priorities. How we choose to prioritize as the church today must be in line with what is written in the word, not according to, quote unquote, a way that seems right to a man. But I know what you are thinking. How in the world am I to then love my wife as Christ loved the church if heaven's agenda must come first? Let me help you understand in light of the word. May God extend grace in proportion to your willingness to receive. The key word in the statement from Ephesians 5.25 is loved. Have you ever noticed that it is written in a past tense? I hear it all the time quoted as loves, but that isn't how God chose to write it. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because God says it does and he wrote it as such. But it also gives us an indication of how Jesus loved the church. It isn't something he is doing now necessarily. It is something he did that we as the reader are being directed to look at for a point of reference. For that, we have to go to John 17, 18 through 19. As you, God, sent me, Jesus, into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Emphasis mine. This verse holds the key for how we as men are to love our wives well. 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. First, we have to see that we have been commissioned in the world in the same way Jesus was commissioned. And that is to do the Father's will first and foremost. To be about heaven's business for the kingdom of God as commanded through the apostles' teaching and not our own. I think most people, if not all, would agree with that truth. But what I feel most often gets missed is the second part when Jesus says, For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Meaning, for the sake of the church. To be consecrated means that one sets themselves apart for holy service unto God. Hagiazo is the Greek term. Why did he choose to devote himself to be about the Father's business? It was for our benefit that we might find the path of sanctification mapped out for us by following his example. Understand, we were not the motive, the aim, nor the ultimate purpose, but rather Jesus saw the bigger picture and knew that we, as the weaker vessel, would need an example in order to find the path to sanctification. We were not his purpose, but we were part of his plan. This is what I meant This is what is meant by Paul when he references Jesus giving himself up for his church. What a beautiful picture of what it means for men to lead as Jesus led and to love as he loved. It isn't that we make our wives or family the most important thing in life, the object of our devotion, the reason for our existence, or to make sure they are happy as we have already learned. It's that we make God, his agenda, and his kingdom the most important thing in life, surrendering ourselves to his will, his pattern, and purpose above all. Men, we don't love our wives well by giving them what they want, but rather by giving them what they need. By so doing, we provide the footsteps for our wives and children to follow so they can ascend the mountain of God. Psalm 85.13 says, Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The problem with how most men in the church lead today is that they try to lead while walking backwards instead of facing Christ. They might not realize it, but when you make your decisions based off of what is best for your wife, instead of what God says, you are trying to follow Christ while looking at your wife. It just doesn't work that way. Or, I've seen men try to lead from behind and actually fall into a trap of submitting to their wives, thus rearranging the proper order of Christ and his church. Either way, they are focused on their wives instead of Christ. Hebrews 12, 1-2. And this disguised idolatry will never please a holy God. I've learned the hard way in ministry. You can never lead well when you're focused on simply pleasing those in your charge. It doesn't work. Jesus never led by making us the primary focus, but rather he consecrated himself unto God so that we could see what holiness truly was in action. He led by keeping his heart submitted to the total will of God, no matter the cost. He led by having a heavenly mindset in all things. Thus, we as men don't lead in his example by having a worldly mindset or our families be the focus. As Francis Chan has said, we don't focus on the family. We keep our family focused. If your family is your focus, your motivation and your priority, you can't be his disciple, nor can you follow him. Luke 9.23 Please think about the implications of that statement, which is rooted in truth. If you aren't on the altar, if they aren't on the altar, then neither are you. Romans 12, 1 through 2. The reality is, marriage has become a golden calf in today's generation, whether you choose to accept it or not. We have taken something God has gifted us with, formed it in our image for our own purpose and pleasure, and then like to say it's honoring to the Lord. 
I can't tell you how many times I have heard someone say that our families are our first ministry. Brothers and sisters, that is just not found in the Word of God. Are they a ministry? Absolutely. That is a truth we cannot avoid, as there are many men and women who neglect their individual responsibilities to their family just as much today as others make their marriages an idol. Both are wrong, as we will soon find out. Husbands are called to love, provide for, not simply meaning monetarily, and lead their families in a way that pleases the Lord. 1 Peter 3, 7, Ephesians 5, 25-33. Wives are called to respect and submit to the authority of their husband's headship. 1 Peter 3, 1-6. And to care for and nurture their children in the Lord. Titus 2, 3-5. I am so thankful for my wife and children, and I take my role as a father and husband very seriously. They are tremendous blessings as partners with me for the cause of Christ and are absolutely part of my ministry. But I do not view my family as my first ministry, nor do I view my wife as the one whom my soul loves. That phrase is a foreshadowed statement primarily for Christ and his church in the beautiful book of Song of Solomon. Christ is the one our soul must love above all. Therefore, we must be careful not to place anyone equal to or above him, for that is idolatry. I know what people mean when they say that, and it sounds romantic, but we must use extreme caution when using biblical foreshadows of Christ and applying them to our wives, men, or for you, your husbands, ladies. God's word must still hold true in our hearts, and he says all our heart and soul are to be devoted to him. Has your soul truly found the one whom it was intended to love, or is it already too full of another? My wife is my partner in this race, and one whom I love dearly. I couldn't imagine a more devoted friend to pursue Christ with, and I've learned so much from my quest to love her. But as Mark 10.9 says, When my wife and I chose to marry one another, God joined us together in covenant as two oxen for his purpose, not two lovebirds for our own. My role as a father and husband are subsidiary ministries to the greatest ministry God has commissioned us all to live out, and that is to tend to and build up his church. This is the reason I'm writing this chapter. The earthly construct of family has ascended above the heavenly construct of family, both in honor and devotion. Its idolatry has gone on long enough. For as long as God's beloved is put on the back burner for what we love most, we will never be empowered to reveal the fullness of his majesty to the world. I firmly believe that it is not the church which exists for the family, but rather the family which exists for the church. And they must work in proper balance and harmony if the majesty of Christ will ever shine through his church as that city on a hill that cannot be hidden. That is why Paul told Timothy in his series of guidelines mapped out in 1 Timothy 3 that if a man is married, he needs to be competent in leading his family well in order to have a position of leadership in a local church. Otherwise, if he cannot lead his family well, do not entrust him with something as valuable as the church. We all have the charge to build up the church, but to have charge over her as an elder is no task to be taken lightly. You see, the family is not the end goal to Paul. The church is. The family does not carry the greater priority. The church does. Look at 1 Timothy 5.8 with me, an often abused and twisted passage. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Sounds serious. To be worse than an unbeliever, or often translated infidel, is pretty strong language used by Paul. Now, if you are like me, you probably grew up thinking that this passage referenced a person's extended family. 
relatives, aunts, uncles, cousins, etc., and their immediate family, household, father, mother, siblings. But let's dissect this to see what Paul is really telling Timothy. The context of this whole passage in 1 Timothy 5 is referencing those who need to be cared for in an earthly household and those who need to be cared for in the household of God, neither one receiving neglect. Now the word for relatives is the Greek word adios and pertains to those who immediately belong to one's own self. It seems more fitting that relatives would instead be translated as his own, as the King James renders it, or those of his house. You could also simplify it to mean those who belong to you by blood. Now here's where it gets interesting. The word in the Greek for members of his household is oikios and means belonging to one's household, belonging to the household of God. What is even more interesting is that this word only appears in the New Testament three times. One of them being in 1 Timothy 5.8. I will list the other two as well. Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Isn't it fascinating that the only times this word is used, it is solely in relation to the household of faith, the church, those united by the blood of Christ as family? I believe Paul is telling Timothy, there are blood relatives, and there are blood relatives. A physical blood and a spiritual blood, the latter demanding the greater priority and honor, or else you are worse than an infidel and have denied the faith of Christ. That is a serious charge and one we cannot afford to gloss over anymore as the church. Far too much is resting upon our obedience, as we will see in this last chapter. We must no longer elevate that which is the picture above that which is the substance. One of my many fascinations I have is with Mount Everest. I just can't wrap my mind around this pinnacle of a mountain of all mountains which mankind has ever known. Peaking at 29,035 feet, having winds at its summit that can reach over 200 miles per hour and temperatures at or below negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit, this mountain is jaw-dropping in its majestic beauty and presents some of the harshest elements one could ever imagine. My mind just cannot comprehend the immense size of this mountain. As tall as the Hyperion is, the tallest tree in the world mentioned in the introduction, it would take about 70 Hyperions to stack on top of each other just to equal the height of Mount Everest. Think of it this way. Next time you get in your car and travel somewhere, take note of exactly how far it is to go about six miles. Better yet, walk it. I want you to contemplate just how far it is and how long it took you to travel that distance. Now picture yourself standing at the base of Mount Everest. Look up and think about the fact that it is almost six miles straight up into the sky. That just blows my mind. I mean, I have been at the top of mountains in Colorado and I can say it is one of the most majestic places I've ever been. But for those who have stood on top of a mountain of equal size to Copper Mountain, about 12,000 feet, think about this. It is not even close to half the size of Mount Everest. Our standard for majesty needs to be readjusted today and find its return to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4.13 
I bring this up to demonstrate a proper perspective to what is truly majestic. We have settled for less than what we can be in Christ today because we have settled for less than who we are to be in Christ. We need to once again ascend the mountain of majesty as the church so that the world can see the full beauty of Christ through us. But ascending the mountain of majesty will be costly. For the more we press into Christ in order to summit the top, the more the enemy will try to suffocate our progress by whatever means necessary. At an altitude of 26,000 feet, the human body literally begins to die. Think about that for those who seek to summit Mount Everest. I mean, getting to 26,000 feet is already the most challenging thing anyone could put their body through. And then to know you still have 3,000 more feet to climb, all while your body is literally dying because of the lack of oxygen. That can be an intimidating thought to conquer, to say the least. At the time of this book, almost 300 people have died trying to summit this giant, 71 of which died on their way back down. I could go on and on about this jewel of God's creation, but I want to give an example that relates to our topic and again, why I'm discussing this with you. Imagine that somehow I was able to summit this mountain. I traveled to Nepal, began this strenuous journey just to get to, the, just to, get to base camp at 5,300 feet. I battled the elements and was able to make it to the top of this mountain, plant my flag and take my picture, literally standing on top of the world. I take it home, frame it in some fancy frame and mount it on my wall so that everyone who comes into my home can see this grand achievement, including me. I can relive the moment by telling everyone all the stories of my time climbing Everest and point them to the picture on my wall. But let me ask you this. Does the picture have greater honor or the actual experience? Does the picture of the mountain have greater value, or does the mountain itself? Of course it is the experience and the mountain itself which has the greater value. After all, I didn't pay $45,000 just to get a picture. Certainly, the picture has value to me, and even those who see it, but it doesn't compare to the actual thing. This is how many treat the concept of family today. By giving the greater honor and attaching the greater value to what is supposed to simply be a picture of the real thing, Christ and his beloved. Too many point people to the picture instead of beckoning them to partner together and experience the beauty and majesty of the real thing. But it isn't pictures that truly inspire and create a sense of awe and wonder. Only the real thing does that. I hope I haven't confused you with any of what I have said, as I know it is easy to misunderstand or not fully grasp the totality of what is being stated sometimes in books. So if you are, let me just break it down for you very simply. What I'm trying to convey is, if you neglect your earthly family, a picture of Christ and His church, that's sinful and you will receive judgment for that. But if you neglect the family of God, diminishing the need to take care of the household of faith and count her as less significant than other relationships or things, you have denied what the faith is all about and are worse than an unbeliever or an infidel. Seems to me the emphasis is on the care for the church as our first ministry, not on family, especially when you weigh all the passages listed in this chapter. So, to quote Paul again in Galatians 6.10, Do good to everyone, including your earthly family, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Emphasis mine. So, what do you do if your wife is a sold-out believer and is pursuing Christ with you? <laughs> then you praise God because that is a blessing. I've seen many men and women get weighed down and lose their passion for Christ, all because their spouse only wants a Jesus they can control and is unwilling to count the cost to follow him. 
Men, if your wives are not pursuing Christ the way they should, that is no excuse for you to slow down. Even marriage is not an acceptable excuse to lay aside the cross of Christ. Make sure to read Luke 14, 15-27 before moving forward, keying in on verses 20 and 26. The relationship with the believing spouse is of equal importance to any other member of the body of Christ. But where the problem arises with many today is they think their physical relationship with their spouse is of greater significance than their spiritual relationship with the church. That misconception is just simply not found in the word. In fact, in light of all we have already talked about, can you find any contextually accurate scripture which says otherwise? Or have you fallen for believing what you want the word to say instead of what it actually says? It seems to be pretty clear to me, but I know there are some skeptics out there who, are, who still need more evidence. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, as God commended the Bereans for taking everything back to the Word by giving them their own little shout-out in Acts. So I'm going to tie in as much Scripture as possible in order to make the point more solidified. Thus, I'll quote another one when it comes to taking care of the church. John three sixteen through 17 I'm sorry, 1 John three sixteen through 17 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John, yet again, writes another passage about taking care of the brethren being priority in this life. For if we understand the sacrifice of Jesus, then our commission is to sacrifice for the church, his body. Therefore, if we have the world's goods and see a member of our heavenly household in need, and we turn our heart from them to care for ourselves or others of a worldly standing, then how is that God's love in us? How is his love being expressed when we neglect a member of his body, of his house, of his blood? Does it really register with your heart and mind that the church is the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven. We aren't a picture of it, a symbolic representation or a foreshadow that betrays him. Scripture says we are the body of Christ. Do we realize that when we sin against the body of Christ, we sin against Christ himself? 1 Corinthians 8, 12. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Don't just read over that last scripture, but really ponder what it is saying, for this is a serious truth we must contemplate. Read it again. This means that if you harbor bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, or any carnal emotion not befitting a child of heaven towards a brother or sister in Christ, you are carrying the same feelings towards Jesus himself. I know we don't always think of it this way, but if we take the word for what it says, it is exactly what we are doing when we harbor ill will towards anyone in the body of Christ. Can I just encourage you that if you feel an inner conviction about having any improper feelings towards a brother or sister in Christ, to stop reading right now, pray for forgiveness, and ask the Lord to heal that wound? Maybe the Lord is prompting you to do something more to help restore peace within the relationship. Or maybe you tried to bring peace, but it wasn't reciprocated, and the relationship is strained. You can't do anything about that, but you can make sure you aren't harboring bitterness. I want to encourage you to commit to pray for them in a way absent of any hurts or pain you have. Whatever it might be, I encourage you to do so without delay. Colossians 3, 12-14 Since scripture says we, as the betrothed of the Lord, are the body of Christ, I do not believe that our relationship with our spouse is the most important relationship today, nor do I believe it is our first ministry. 
Anyone who says they follow Jesus and yet makes their spouse or their children of greater priority and purpose than the beloved of Christ is walking in open idolatry. I know it sounds harsh, but I just don't see any way, any other way to put it when weighed with the word. Those who ascend earthly family above the heavenly family are fashioning a golden calf from the good gifts that God has given. Again, our families are a ministry and one to not be taken lightly. I'm emphasizing this point again. Because I've learned that when talking to people about controversial things, many times they only focus on what they disagree with, instead of considering the entirety of what was actually said. We must love and honor our families, but in the proper order as according to God's word. Of course, there will be exceptions at times, in which a spouse or child needs urgent attention, and their immediate need should be placed of equal value to the body. For instance... If a child is extremely ill and needs immediate care and attention and the situation causes you to not be able to make that accountability meeting with the sister. Or maybe a spouse gets in a bad car accident and you need to go with them to the hospital and it causes you to not be able to assemble with the saints to worship Christ. These situations demand delicate and often immediate and urgent care and should absolutely be given our attention. But to be honest... These are also isolated and rare occurrences and not the situations I'm referencing that have become the issue today in the church. Jobs, sports, hobbies, leisure, family activities, etc. These are the things which are robbing God from what he should be getting from your life. They have become greater priorities to many over what is priority to God. If any of these things listed cause you to abandon who we are to be as the church of Christ in accordance with his word, then you have chosen to abandon God's pattern and have placed him outside the walls of your life instead of building your life around him. I know I've hit this topic hard, but I've seen this golden calf distract the people of God far too often today. It deceives many into thinking they are honoring God when in actuality they are just outwitted and dishonoring what he honors most. I really haven't even scratched the surface of listing all the scriptures that reference the value God places on his beloved. But please allow me a bit more leash to expound on this truth just a little farther, as it is vital that we understand this in full. Have you ever read the parable of the sheep and the goats? Like, really read through it? I'm just going to briefly take you through it, keying in on an emphasized truth that often gets missed today. As we stated at the beginning of this book, get out your Bibles and go over get out your Bibles and go over it either afterward or along with me as I share it. It really is so useful in order to gain insight, context, and confirmation to the things I'm addressing. Our generation has gotten far too lazy in studying the Word, and it seems to always want everything spoon fed. It's time to grow up, brethren. As Hebrews 5 commands, and what better time to start than now? Turn to Matthew 25, 31 through 46. I want you to see that Jesus separates the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And then speaking directly to the sheep, he tells them that they took care of him while he was gone. Naturally, the sheep ask him how they accomplished that since they didn't see him. To which Jesus responds in verse 40. As you did it to one of the least of these, referencing the other sheep in the midst, my brothers, you did it to me. Emphasis mine. Jesus literally tells them how you took care of the brethren, the household of God, is how you took care of me. Think back to 1 Timothy 5.8. That's an amazing statement when you sit and think about it. 
How we treat those of the household of God is how we treat Jesus himself and is actually a dividing line of separation. Flip side of this equation, Paul, formerly known as Saul, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He has letters of authority to imprison any who belong to Jesus as Christians and is on his way to do just that. But he has an encounter with Jesus on the road who says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul wasn't physically persecuting Jesus, but he was his church, the body of Christ. Listen to what Paul himself says. 1 Corinthians 15, 9a. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why would Paul say such things about himself? Why would he have such a remorseful attitude towards who towards who he used to be. Even saying he was the lowest of all apostles. Listen to what he finishes up that verse with. Expounding on the words Jesus uttered to him on that awesome and beautiful day they met. 1 Corinthians 15, 9b. Because I persecuted the church of God. Seems as though Paul understood what Jesus meant. Persecuting my body is persecuting Christ himself. To be persecuted simply means to be mistreated. Thus counting the church as less significant than other relationships or other things is mistreating our Lord and Savior and diminishing what He has done as 1 John 3.16 stated. Think of it this way. If scientifically, blood is used to determine the physical relationship of people, which often results in a unique and special bond for families, How much more should the shed blood of Jesus be what unites us as a spiritual family? With that in mind, do you think counting the blood of our earthly family of greater value than the blood of Christ and His spiritual family honors God? The answer to that question is simple and an emphatic no. It is not honoring to Him nor to His sacrifice. In fact, I think placing a higher emphasis on family rather than the church is portraying the blood of Christ as common, lesser, and even to a degree, profaning the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified. Hebrews 10, 26-31. You're, you're going to want to make sure and read that passage, my friends, since it is a dangerous ground to treat His blood as common. So do we have an instance in which Jesus Himself followed His own teaching on this matter? Surely he wouldn't ask us to do something he himself wasn't willing to do. Remember, he is our example to follow. Mark 3, 31-35 And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus literally says that his earthly family was of lesser value than his heavenly family. It appears to be beyond dispute as we see from scripture that our love for, devotion to, and prioritization of the brethren above all forms of relationships in this world should be on a level all its own. 
Let me be clear. The church did not save us. Thus the church is not equal to Christ in that regard. In John 21.15, Jesus asks Peter if he loved him more than the other disciples who were with him. And Peter says, you know I love you. Then Jesus asks him the question twice more. And each time, Peter naturally says, yes. But it is Jesus' response that carries so much significance. As each time he responds, he tells Peter to take care of the sheep that belong to him. Who would that be? Who are the sheep that belong to Jesus who he would call his own or his household? That privilege is given solely to his body, the church, the brethren. Jesus is teaching Peter that if you truly love him, you'll tend to care for and feed his church. The point is the church should never come in second when Christ always comes in first. That means our jobs, families, interests, and hobbies, even our own selves, must be placed behind our commitment to Christ and His church. It isn't an option for consideration, but a command to be obeyed. For if we truly love Him, we will obey what He asks of us. John 14, 15-24 Of course, we as parents want our children to be happy and to live fulfilled lives. What parent who loves their children wouldn't? But think about it like this. If our greatest joy and pleasure is truly Christ, then wouldn't it make sense for us to want it to be the same for our children? 3 John 1.4 Not sports, or school, or hobbies, or even themselves, but Christ worshipped above all. What do your actions suggest is priority for your family? You see, it isn't our love for the body that motivates us to love Christ. It's our love for Christ that motivates our love for His body. Our Master, the head of His body, the church, has commanded us to care for His own as He did. And we would be in disobedience if we choose not to. Thus, those who live a life of exclusion from the intentional involvement in a local church body are in disobedience to His command given to us to obey and to live out. John fifteen twelve through 14 Too many men and women today have made their marriages or families about themselves and have only covered it with a facade of wanting to honor God. Marriage was not even instituted by God primarily for you, nor was the gold and silver given to the Hebrews coming out of Egypt. It was given to us as a gift to be used for Him. See Parable of the Talents in Matthew 25. Do we understand that? Your marriage is not about you. We must not engage in the idolatry of worshipping golden calves, the using of something God gives us for our own pleasure and interests, no matter how good it might seem. We are called to be holy, brethren, set apart as sojourners in this world and seekers of a city that is to come. Hebrews thirteen fourteen. Our minds are to be set on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, not on things below. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. We must not be given into the temptation to be worldly and temporally minded, set in our minds on earthly things. Philippians three seventeen through twenty one, first John two, fifteen through seventeen, even good things. Some of you who made it through this chapter will think I'm writing simply to diminish the concept of marriage and the family unit. Well, if you mean how God intended family to be in light of the fullness of God's word, then no. I'm actually seeking to restore it to the beauty of what it can be with God's grace and God's design. Marriage is a holy institution made by God, and it is beautiful and good. 
and full of all sorts of avenues for God to sanctify us more into His image. There are so many things God can teach us about Himself and about our own selves through marriage. But if you mean the popularized golden calf it has become today that has been elevated above the people and purpose of God, then yes, I am. In fact, I'm not just trying to diminish it. I'm seeking to expose it and to do exactly as Moses commanded to be done to the golden calf when he saw what was happening with God's people. Destroy the falsified image so that what God has given us can be used exactly how and for what it was actually intended.